Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten, because this is Club Book. Club Book is made possible by Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund, MELSA, and Library Strategies. We'd like to thank our media sponsor at MinPost.com for helping us get the word out about our great guest authors. This podcast features Jacqueline Holland at St. Paul Public Library, Riverview. Jacqueline Holland is the pen behind the chart-topping novel, The God of Endings. Publications as many and varied as Book Riot, BNN Reads, Lit Hub, Polygon, Library Journal, and E! singled out this literary debut as one of the most anticipated fiction titles of 2023. The God of Endings follows Colette Lassange, headmistress of an elite fine arts school in upstate New York. She is talented, affable, and unbeknownst to her students and colleagues, immortal. Colette has kept her nature a secret and a growing bloodlust at bay for 150 years until the arrival of a gifted student from a troubled home threatens to reveal all. NPR praises The God of Endings as a refreshing take on the vampire genre an atmospheric vampire tale that wrestles with the existential questions of being and philosophy rather than bloodlust and gore. It became an instant favorite with fans of Anne Rice and V.E. Schwab. Hello, I think that was the nicest intro that I've had. I'm always so excited when people show up to like <laughs> hear me talk at these things. I don't, I don't always know, like where, how, how do you know me? How, how did you end up here? Hi, I know how you ended up here. <laughs> um, so thank you so much for, for being here. Uh, what wasn't mentioned in my intro is that I am also a patron of this library. This is my neighborhood and so um, when I was invited to do this, I was very specific about what library I wanted to be at. And so I'm here because I love this library. I'm guessing you are here because you love this library as well. Um, so with that said, I'm going to go ahead and get to uh, reading a section from the book. Does this sound okay, Mike? Okay. Um, and when the book first came out and I did my initial touring, I felt kind of obligated to read the first few pages of the book because many people hadn't read the whole thing and I didn't want to give away spoilers and stuff like that. So it's fun to do an event these months later where I can just assume you've read it or hope you've read it and all bets are off uh, and just read a part that I really like. Um, so uh, one thing that was left out, this book has a lot in it. It's a little bit of what I call a kitchen sink novel. Um, there's just a ton in it because I just like a ton of stuff. 
so there is that story of Colette as the headmistress of the preschool, but that is also woven in with her history, um, beginning in the late 1800s in upstate New York, where she is turned into a vampire by her grandfather. And then she is sent across the ocean into the depths of the, um, the woods in uh, a, a region of Eastern Europe that she doesn't even really know where she is. Uh, and she's living with this very strange motley family that she's been sent to. And uh, the sort of babushka mother figure is a woman named Proska. And um, seems like she has some kind of magical powers or something to that effect, a little bit witchy, but wonderful and um, really healing for her, her name at this point. The main character's name at this point is Anna. Um, and then in Russian, Anya. Uh, and then she also lives with these two twin boys who are being sheltered there as well. They grow up together. They uh, work through a lot of trauma together. And the scene that I actually want to read is a scene where they've grown up together and one of the brothers um, has been through more trauma than the other. He has been beaten, he has been uh, abused pretty viciously in a previous situation. He is also a vampire. His brother is not, um, but is sort of a mystical figure as well. And so this character, Eru, he ends up um, having a rendezvous of sorts with a village girl and rescuing her, unbeknownst to the rest of his family, from a bad situation that she was in. Uh, and she, she was pregnant and also being abused in her marriage or whatever situation, and Ehru has taken her out of that situation and helped her to birth her child. This is a lot of setup. <laughs> um, and so we're in this cottage where this strange family lives together, and Ehru has made this really huge decision to, um, to establish a relationship with this mortal girl. And they're living in this sort of, uh, they're waiting for the, uh, the villagers to essentially come after him. Um, oh, thank you, that's wonderful. So, hopefully you don't need to know or comprehend all of that to just kind of enjoy the passage that I'm, I'm gonna read to you. Um, so, the baby's just been born. Uh, it's questionable whether or not it's going to survive. And uh, Ehru makes the decision to um, turn the, the woman and her baby into vampires like himself, and they together are gonna be immortal. Piroska, knowing somehow, as she always did, that we were coming, had water boiling in the kettle and the bed ready for the girl when we reached the house. Ehru laid the girl in it, undressed her, and put a blanket over her chest and arms because even unconscious, she was shaking. He took the kettle and, as if it were the cool water of a spring, dipped a cloth, wrung out the scalding water, and washed her with it. As the blood came off her skin, the green and purple and dark bruises became visible on the girl's legs. She had torn terribly where the baby had come out. Peroska held the point of a needle over the tip of a flame and then came over to the bed to sew her up. 
but Evrud took the needle from her and without a word turned back to the girl. Wait, Peroska croaked. She went to her shelves and came back with a small bottle. She put a drop of tincture into the girl's mouth and then several drops on the girl's womanly parts. Then she nodded at Evru, and he began sewing the girl's flesh with a delicate care I never would have imagined him to possess. Peroska came to me where I sat by the fire, holding and rubbing the still motionless bundle in the swaddle of her skirts. Of my skirts, sorry. Vano squatted nearby, that's the other brother, pushing the coals around in the hearth with the poker as if he'd lost something in the fire and was searching for it. His hair was as wet as if he'd just climbed out of the river. Sweat ran in rivulets down his forehead and his neck. Peroska touched his shoulder and he looked up at her and there passed between them a look of wordless knowing. Peroska reached for the baby and I handed the bundle to her, tears slipping finally from my eyes. I think it's... I struggled against my closing throat to get the words out. I think it's dead. I went to Evru, where he was sewing the last stitches. Your child, Evru, I said, averting my eyes from the girl's torn body. I haven't felt it move. It hasn't cried. I'm afraid. The baby is not mine, Anya. Do you still not know the way of things? The baby was put in her by the same one who put all those bruises on her body. The one you saw by the river, I don't doubt. I am certain it was me he was hunting. He hunts nothing now. I was too astonished by this to speak. He had known, or at least suspected, who the man was all along. Ehru knotted the thread, then with a sharp knife, cut it free from the needle. But the child will be mine, he said, pulling the blankets down to cover the girl's bare legs and smoothing them gently over her, just as she is mine and I am hers. Before the fire, Peroska had undone the swaddle and washed the baby, a girl, clean. She swaddled the child again in fresh cloth and put a drop of some other tincture in her mouth. And then she sat rubbing the baby's body vigorously and whispering into the child's ear. Eru came over and stood beside her. She lives, Peroska said to him, but only so much. She held her fingers close together, only so long. It was very hard for her. She feels she cannot go on. She set the baby in Eru's arms, and he looked down into the still-pinched, faintly-breathing face. I go, Peroska said, to get milk from the sheep. No, Evru said, there's no time for that, or need. What do you mean? I asked. We will bury this child tonight, he said, looking at me, and I realized that everyone was looking at me. Peroska, Vano, and Evru. What do you mean? I said again. She might live. If Peroska feeds her, she might... I turned to Peroska, and the woman looked back at me with a gentle, compassionate smile, as though I were a child in need of understanding. Vano, too, gleaming with sweat in the firelight, just stared forward calmly. Neither of them seemed surprised. Why? How much, I wondered, had they known or suspected before tonight? Why was I the only one, as usual, who didn't understand what was happening? She might live, I said, choked with frustration. She will live, Eru said. She will live forever. What? We will live forever. Together. Eru turned and looked at the girl in the bed. They are my family now. Lada and I have spoken of it. Lada wills it also. You'll make them like us? I said, stumbling back into a chair. But I said it to myself. No one else was listening. Peroska and Vano were watching Yahoo as he went to the bed and laid the baby in the crook of her sleeping mother's arm. If they had any opinion in the matter, they made no hint at it, either through word or expression. Yahoo whispered to the baby in the language that he and Vano shared. He kissed her on the forehead, then gently pulled one tiny arm free from the swaddle. 
He kissed her face, he kissed her again on her face, on her hand. Then he turned the arm over and put it to his mouth. The baby scrunched her face for just an instant as Ahru carefully punctured her skin with his teeth. Then he began to drink. No, I whispered, no. He stood up and paced, glancing over only now and then to see what was happening. I stood up and paced, glancing over only now and then to see what was happening. At last, Ahru laid the baby's arm down, and the baby lay still, an ashy gray pallor to her tiny hand and face. Ahru stood and walked out of the hut. I couldn't bear the stillness of the baby, the stillness of Peroska and Vano sitting silently in their chairs, listening intently to our futures. So I followed Ahru outside and found him splitting wood deftly into thin planks. You just, you just drank that baby's life away? Yes, he said then heaved the axe up over his shoulder and down through the wood again, and I gave her my own. He looked at me then, and his face was the calmest and most at peace that I had ever seen it. He looked very like Vano, just as he had as a boy, but not for many years since. It is an exchange, Anya. You take and you give. When you are ready, your body knows what to do and will do it. Your body always knows what to do, if you can only move your mind out of the way. How can you choose this? How can you choose this for them? Life, forever. He didn't answer, just thrust the axe gracefully forward, making the wood halves leap apart like a dance. Aru, you and I are alike. I know you've suffered a great deal. I've suffered too. This world has not been kind to either of us, and yet we must go on in it. We cannot escape it. Is that what you want for them? Is that what they want, really? Eru rusted the axe head against the dirt for a moment and shook his head. To starve a man would seem a cruel act, an unkindness, no? He asked, looking at me. And yet, imagine that that starving man finally puts food in his mouth. How will that food taste? He put his fingers to his mouth as though savoring some indescribable flavor. I tell you, Anya, no matter if it is the blandest porridge, it will taste better than any dish that any well-fed king has ever eaten. And I ask you, in that moment, when the starving man holds that first bite on his tongue and discovers, as he otherwise could not, all the pleasure that food was ever capable of bringing to man, was the starvation that preceded it an unkindness or a kindness? I, he put a thick finger up before him. He will decide, and whatever he decides will be true for him. He reached forward and turned the wood block then threw the axe in another smooth arc, like twin divers back to back leaping into twin pools, the halves peeled away. Your mind causes you suffering, Anya. You fear of the, your fear of the pain you've experienced and of future pain. I have experienced much pain, it is true, but now he straightened up tall, waning crescent moons gleaming, gleamed faintly in his eyes that might have been gathering tears. He pointed to the hut where candlelight glimmered through the windows. I am that man. I have tasted that first bite after so much hunger. I have no quarrel with the world, and I will give it, all of it, without hesitation. But you are right, Anya. They will have to decide for themselves, just as I have. Everyone must decide for themselves whether this world and life in it is a kindness or an unkindness, a blessing or a curse. Finished with the splitting, he fit the small wood planks against each other. Help me, he said, please. Still unsettled and uncertain of what I made of his words, I came to him and knelt, let him guide my hands onto the wood planks so that I held them in place. 
Then he took a hammer and tacks and hammered the wood planks together. And together thus, Ehru and I built a coffin for his child. With that, we have reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our Club Book audience for questions and comments for Jacqueline Holland and her work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question of the night comes from an audience member wondering if Holland ever scares herself when writing about vampires. That is a great question. Um, and, you know, I'll kind of maybe let some people weigh in, but I don't think that my vampires are terribly scary. <laughs> um, they're very human. And uh, if, if anything is scary, it's more um, what's inside of them that is inside of all of us. It's not unique to vampires. Uh, it's their flawedness, their inability to perfectly control the dark impulses and the appetites and the, um, at times, sort of savagery that lies inside of them. And I am very much afraid of that. Uh, and I think that that's where the book sprang from, is my own fear of that. Um, so in a certain way, yes, I do scare myself. Um, this book came out of the angst of being a new mother and feeling so frustrated and agonized by my own inability to be perfect, to be uh, just angelic and well-rested at every moment of every day, and of the terrible consequence that that had, the way that who I was, the good, the bad, and the ugly, shaped these new humans and all of their crap I was responsible for, at least until they're like five and then they're on their own. But um, that, that responsibility felt terrifying to me and painful and just, it was such an earnest wrestling. And Colette came along, Anna, Anya, and just gave voice to that angst and that conflict and got to do it with blood and murder instead of like diapers and you know that kind of boring stuff. Um, yeah, and, but my goal is to now genuinely scare myself. My my book that I'm working on now is hopefully scary, uh, and I think it's working. I do think that I'm a little scared of the material that I'm that I'm writing right now. So yeah, it's exciting. It's it's a fun challenge to set for yourself. I never thought of myself as a horror writer um, until this book came out and horror people started saying, hey, look at this horror book. And I was like, really? Cool, that's awesome. And then I got really into it. So yeah, awesome question, I love that. This audience member asked if Holland read many vampire books before starting her own novel. Yeah, so I really was not super thoroughly read in vampire fiction. Uh, I have yet to read Twilight. I had read Dracula. Uh, I had read a few things when I was younger. Um, but once I knew I was writing a vampire novel, I actually sort of consciously abstained from reading 
like there was definitely the impulse to just binge it all and like get the lay of the land. But I really decided that I didn't want to do that because I wanted to sort of write it in this pure, untampered state. And I was just afraid that if I read a bunch of vampire literature that I would be writing around those things. And I just, I didn't want to do that. I wanted to write it in the best way that I could. And then once it was done, then I binged. And then it was fun to add in little details to kind of get, give nods here and there. Um, I do have a few little Easter eggs in there that you might recognize from Dracula or some different things like that. Uh, but yes, I definitely I am now an expert in vampire fiction. I have I have read a lot of it, not all of it certainly, but a lot of it, and um, it's really fun stuff. Yeah. But actually, the other the other half of the answer to this is that I did do a ton of research. It just wasn't that kind. Um, so I looked at vampires as a historical phenomenon and as a uh, constant source of lore. So people ask me, you know, what, what made you decide to have your vampire able to go out in daylight and uh, not sleep in a coffin and have no problem with garlic, stuff like that. Um, and the reason is because for most of vampire history, those weren't things. Uh, vampires are so old and the only thing that remains constant about them is that they drink blood or not even necessarily blood, they drain the life force from someone and usually they don't die. Um, but I was reading uh, The Vampire in Europe by Montague Summers and uh, these books that sort of just documented the stories that people in far-flung villages told completely earnestly that they genuinely believed. Uh, I also learned about the New England Vampire Panic, which if you are not familiar with it, I'm so excited for the rabbit hole you're about to fall down because it is so fascinating. Um, so tuberculosis was ravaging the northeastern seaboard and people were a hundred, actually I think it was, it was 200 years after Salem Witch Trials, they were attributing it to vampires. They were convinced that their dead loved ones were coming up out of the ground and taking the next family member and then on and on and on. Um, and this is at the same time that sanatoriums are being built where, where doctors are working on tuberculosis, but just the nature of information and how it would be sort of sequestered in cities and it wouldn't make it to the countryside and people would just tell stories um, it's really interesting to, to see the way these ideas persisted and how late they persisted and, um, and people were desecrating graves, they were breaking bones, uh, burning hearts and eating the ashes. So all the details that are in the beginning of the book, none of that is made up, not a single detail. Uh, that is all taken from historical practice uh, and it's super interesting. And then um, other vampires that were believed in, that were talked about, were things like in the African diaspora, skin-shedding hags who would become balls of flame and go flying through the night seeking their victims. Uh, there's a Filipino uh, vampire iteration that flies around with 
its entrails literally just hanging in the air. So my question to people who ask me, why does your vampire go out during the day? My question is, why don't your vampires have their entrails hanging out as they're flying through the sky? Like, how did we get so narrow? How did this happen? It's just, come on, let's, let's broaden it a little bit. So I'm really excited for the vampire books to come that kind of use some of those more far-flung uh, ideas and, and lores to do really new and exciting things with vampires. There's so much possibility. This question is why Jacqueline Holland decided to include Dia de los Muertos in her story. For me, I like, so I thought, you know, I'm writing about a preschool teacher. Uh, that risks being super boring and annoying. Uh, I've been in preschools. It's, it, you know, it can, you can get your fill pretty quick. So I really put some thought into how do I make this interesting? How do I make each scene indicative of character? How do I make each scene further the plot and not make readers feel like they're actually part-time in a, in a daycare? Uh, and so one of the things that I thought was fun was having a preschool teacher who is moderately fixated on death and uh, very interested in all of the death ceremonies around the world. And she's lived a really long time, so she has perhaps a broader view than the typical um, American in the 80s. So in the 80s, probably no one had, a, I mean, no one in that part of the country especially knew much about Dia de los Muertos or, or even La Toussaint, the French holiday. Um, it, but she does because she's lived a long time. She's been all over the world and she desperately wants to die. Uh, and she's very interested in these customs and these rituals that different cultures have come up with surrounding death. And she is trying to sort of expand her students' minds and also help them connect with their dead loved ones, which is also a preoccupation of hers. She's lost a lot of people. And the way that Americans deal with death would seem very bizarre and kind of fragmented and um, just unhealthy and unholistic, the way we put bodies in graves and we walk away and we don't have these in culturally enshrined practices of revisiting. Um, grief is a very lonely thing, often done somewhat in isolation, especially compared to other cultures. Um, so I think she's kind of bucking against that. Uh, and then also it gives me the opportunity it's a more interesting thing to see at a preschool than some other things you can do. It gives me the opportunity to have um, Officer McCormick come in and be like, this is weird. <laughs> Which I just, I, that was a fun moment for me to like show her character and kind of like help us see them in opposition a little bit. Uh, and then we also get Leo's involvement with this project and the beginning sense that something's up here. Like, why is this mom so opposed to him participating in this seemingly innocuous um, 
you know, exercise. So yeah, I mean, it's, I don't get to dig into those kind of like backstitching details all that often. I love to do that. I love to think about the process. This member from the audience asked why Holland chose to set her novel in this particular time period instead of present day. Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, I hate cell phones. I don't want to write about them. I don't want anyone checking their texts. And also, they're just a real nuisance in plot. Uh, it's very hard to be unreachable. It's very hard to not know about things. Um, so it also, if you think about it, was the sort of last moment that we were untraceable as people, that we didn't have uh, documentation online for where we lived and uh, you know, criminal record, things like that. It, all that information about a person was still very siloed. And so it was possible to disappear. And that's what Colette does. That's, you know, her, her life strategy is to sort of be somewhere for a while and then move on and to be, um, you know, lost in the crowd. Uh, and then also, I'm an 80s baby. I grew up in the 80s and I have a lot of fond memories of it. And I wanted to include, you know, the glitter and the, I mean, I'm wearing jelly shoes tonight, folks. <laughs> I am wearing glitter jelly shoes tonight. So some of it was just nostalgia and, um, but it, it also was very a very opportune moment for her, and life's about to get a lot harder for her if you know her story continues because she's gonna have to gain some skills or something because uh, you know we all know that the future made it a lot harder to disappear after committing her crimes. Our next question is if Holland came up with her characters or the plot first when writing her novel. Yeah, that's a great question, really fun to think about. Um, and I don't think that I have one way. Uh, in this novel, Colette just kind of grabbed me by the collar one day and started airing her woes, like telling me her poor tale. And I was like, okay, let me get some paper, please. <laughs> you know. Um, so definitely the character came to me first for this. And for this book in general, a lot of characters did appear and people that I had in my mind and I knew I wanted to get to them. Uh, but I have other stories that I've written where a premise comes to me first and I have to figure out you know, by whom I will enter the story. Um, so yeah, it can be really different, but my characters are really important. They are where my heart is at. I hope that shows in, in their writing. I love characters. I'm happiest as a writer when they're speaking. I love listening to them and hearing what they have to say. And um, so yeah, I'm not the kind to have a plot and be like, all right, you know, like let's do a Rubik's cube of like blue eyes and like, uh, irritable, you know, just like grab some qualities and toss them together. Um, they feel very important to me. It took me six years to write this book. Uh, so she definitely did not lay it all out correctly the first time. <laughs> um, she, yeah, she told, I, I had to revise the heck out of it. It, it changed and developed so much. I had to work on her voice. I always felt like I knew her fundamentally, but it took a lot of tinkering and a lot of, uh, my husband's an artist and I, you know, art 
figures prominently in the book as well, but I have always found it really interesting the way you try to catch a form on paper. It, you don't catch it the first time. You draw a line and then you draw another line and, and one of those 15 lines is like the closest and then you go and you kind of shape that one. Um, and that's very much what the process of getting this book to the finish line felt like. It, I couldn't even tell you how many drafts I wrote. I think I deleted 50 files <laughs> like when it was finally off to the printing press. Um, yeah, it was, and even, you know, I didn't know what this book was about, like in a deep thematic way until fairly late in the game. There were these thematic elements and there was a central conflict that I understood, but the book was trying to say something and there was a unity that, it, that I didn't understand yet. And it really wasn't until like the last maybe two revisions that I really that I really knew it and I knew what it was trying to say and then I could assist it to say that and I could go back and highlight these notes like what I read to you tonight with Efru talking about every person having to decide for themselves if life is a gift or a curse. Um, that definitely became one of the clear themes and then it was a real pleasure to go back and draw it out and, and make it so that the reader could find that and follow it and arrive somewhere. Yeah, so no, it was a very, very quarrelsome book, very difficult. I hope the next one is easier. <laughs> so far it is. This fan wonders what inspires Holland in her writing. Yeah, I think it's very important as an artist, any kind of artist, to live your life sort of stewing like like you're in this aromatic soup and you're just like soaking it in and you can't rush a stew you know you have to, and you never know what little bit is gonna be the thing um so i read a ton and i find that what i read often very remarkably ends up feeding really beautifully into what i'm working on uh, I love movies, I love music, um, I have a playlist that I made on my Instagram account because music was so helpful and important in writing this book. Um, I listened to the album White Chalk by PJ Harvey on repeat for the entire time that I was writing the beginning in New York uh, because that album just has a very kind of gothic feel and it's all about being female in a sort of bleak, oppressive, gothic milieu. And it was just perfect. And I wish I could give PJ Harvey a copy and, and say thank you, you know, because that album was really helpful. Um, and then when I was writing the part that takes place in Eastern Europe, I was listening to two albums by Midlake, uh, uh, The Trials of Van Panther and um, The Courage of Others. And they are both almost like pastoral rock, and they're very like mythical and um, and um, bucolic and rural, you know, feeling. And they just they were so evocative for me, and they really helped me help just images come to my mind and and sort of a, a feel that I found it helpful to kind of channel. 
Um, so yeah, all of it. And and I recommend like I just think everyone, even if you're not an artist, just like eat that rich stuff. The the art is just so good for your soul, regardless of what you do with it, regardless of you know if you turn it around into your relationships or your you know your journal, whatever. Another audience member wonders if a sequel is in the works. Yeah, um, so possibly I, you know, writing a book about immortals obviously sets you up pretty nicely for a sequel or a trilogy or endless books. I don't think endless books are in my, my future, I am mortal, but, um, but I did have ideas for a sequel uh, and I did begin writing a sequel way back when I wrote the very first draft of this, I immediately got started on a sequel, and I was really pumped and really into it, and it still excites me. Um, so it's possible. It's really fun hearing readers talk about what they would like to, like what loose ends. They're like, you gotta, you gotta tell me, you gotta bring him back, you gotta do something with this. That's really fun. I think it may, it may be in the future, but who knows? I'm, I'm just, I do, I do what I please. <laughs> This question is what Jacqueline Holland is working on now. It feels a little odd that my first book was a fantasy novel because I, I self-identify as a science fiction geek. Um, I love science fiction and it is what I love to write. It's what I wrote the most of um, before this. And so my next book is science fiction. Uh, and I'm very excited. It feels a little bit like coming home. And I actually have a novelette coming out next month, um, I believe, <laughs> fingers crossed, uh, an ebook exclusive free novelette that is science fiction as well. And it's a soft, soft apocalypse um, that I think will be a really nice stepping stone from this to that. Uh, even though it's science fiction, I think it has some similar feels and atmosphere and stuff like that. So I'm really excited about that coming out as well. Considering what Holland is writing now, what are some of her favorite science fiction writers? Oh man, um, Ursula Le Guin is the, the first name that immediately comes to my mind. Um, just so, so many, Stanislaw Lem. I'm a huge fan of Stanislaw Lem. Solaris is just a gorgeous, it's a gorgeous book. It is psychological, it's so smart that you, unless you're way smarter than me, may have like, like I gotta pay attention to what he's saying. And it's also scary, it will scare you. And it's a beautiful love story as well. It's like, it does everything, it's, it's amazing. Um, so that's one that I, I really adore. Um, I mean, I love a lot of the classics, just, you know, Frederick Pohl and, um, I don't know, I'm trying to think of what ones I've read recently. Um, yeah, but I think Ursula Le Guin, I'm, in, in her early career, I think that she was trying to write like the men who wrote science fiction because that's the only people who wrote, were allowed uh, into that community. But then in her later years, she really came into her own and her work became so rich and so um, culturally observant and like psychologically observant and just profoundly beautiful in, in a way that I feel like she maybe held back earlier. So that's stuff that I love. 
Our last question of the night comes from an audience member wondering what Holland's writing schedule looks like. I have two children, and they're not the most timing as children ever, but still, um, it is a struggle to carve out. And, and I don't know, I actually was talking to another writer, also mother, who was saying, when the babies were young, I was such a badass. I would write in the car while they were asleep in the car seat, you know, and like, and I would just like, until they made that little cooing sound that announced they were awake, I was going. And now it's like, they're at school, I have six hours, maybe I'll get a paragraph done. It's nonsense. So we were kind of hypothesizing about like, what is it? Do you just need like incredible, you know, obstacles to really like, okay, I better do this. And I think that that might be some of it also. I was, you know, 12 years younger and had way more energy. Um, but I always find that when I am getting back to it nearly every day, that is when I am producing consistently. And, and so I, I very much recommend that. Um, I cannot write in my home, at least at this point. I've never, we've always lived in teeny tiny apartments uh, with not enough rooms. So I've always gone out to coffee shops to write and that has really worked for me. Now I have an office and I can't write in it. <laughs> so uh, I hope I'm gonna keep trying because I don't wanna be spending that like extra $300 on coffee like every <laughs> quarter, but um, but that works for me and uh, trying to get to it every day. Also being very gentle with myself and understanding that there are different parts in the writing process, in the drafting process. There was, a, I think for a year, I just mentally stewed on my next book and I just had too many unknowns that I really couldn't set down pen to paper a whole lot. I wrote a few scenes here and there. I, you know, kind of like tried to sketch some things out, but I just, I didn't know enough. And so I really did just have to be, not panic. Like, okay, I'm not writing much, but this is useful time. This is time that has to happen. And if I were writing, it would all just be going in the trash bin anyway, and it'd be really sad, it'd be good, but I wouldn't be able to use it, you know? Um, so there are, there are different times, and I, I heard Lauren Hill talking about creativity on a reel, on Instagram, of course, but she was saying something about just needing these periods to let your fields kind of lie fallow and let them become enriched again. And she was saying, you know, there were times where I just get right back in the studio and I was making music, but it wasn't my best work. Um, and I think that that is really true. It's at least really true for me. And I, I value richness over quantity. So I have to commit to allowing my fields to lie fallow a little bit and like giving myself patience, which is scary when you only get money to live when you make books <laughs> and turn them in. Thank you so much for coming and really nice to meet you. That wraps up our St. Paul Public Library event with Jacqueline Holland. Make sure to catch our next podcast with Nicole Chung. 
Nicole Chung is a Korean-American adoptee and memoirist, best known for her 2018 debut, All You Can Ever Know. Her anticipated follow-up, A Living Remedy, centers around her adoptive parents' untimely deaths and what Chung's personal loss has to teach us about America's persistent healthcare inequities. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. Stay up to date with all of our events at our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle clubbookmn. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who make Clubbook possible, including Melsa, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include MinPost and Red Balloon Bookshop, where you can purchase all the books featured in Clubbook. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Clubbook, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.